This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We are talking about a very disturbing uptick in threats against doctors who are promoting vaccination. And um, it's happening online. It's handwritten letters. It's very scary threats. It's escalated to death threats. So uh, what do you think? And, And who should be trying to do something about this. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, you know, in the last while, we've been hearing a lot about Facebook, about social media, and how they are uh, really dropping the ball in terms of limiting very harmful, dangerous content. Um, Dr. Arya, I mean, do you have any expectations? Are you trying to get anything done that way? Well, I mean, I did mention science communications, and I really think that from the very start of the vaccine rollout especially, there should have been, uh, you know, a science communications plan from the government to provide people accurate information, to answer their questions and make sure that people, you know, are at least, you know, given something that's real and not, you know, just misinformation that's provided to them on Facebook or WhatsApp or Twitter or other social media channels. And really, we haven't seen that. Uh, Sadly, we've seen that, of course, many of my colleagues like Dr. Kaplan Mirth and Dr. Bogler, who are on this call today, have done undoubtedly outstanding work uh, with their patients and have gone even above and beyond to, to well, promote vaccination and to okay, sort of, I, I, know, provide I, the right information. But I have to, the government? I just admit, I have to jump in there. I mean, we've got people from the science advisory table who make themselves available all the time. Uh, I, doctors who make themselves available all the time. But at, at the end of the day, frankly, there are a lot of people who only want to Uh, take in information that, uh, you know, agrees with their worldview. And, you know, quite frankly, I think, you know, there's no amount of whatever education programs is going to get to them if if they just want to be on conspiracy theory chat rooms. Am I wrong? So, I would agree. So I, think I, I would agree with that. True. Go ahead. Go ahead. Who's? who's oh, I was gonna. I was just gonna. So I was just gonna jump in and say that that I would agree that that we can't like all of the um, what we do in terms of science communication and education that does reach um, the the people who had legitimate questions and needed to have those questions answered. But like the people who are attacking us, the people who are sending the death threats, those aren't people who are. Um, those aren't people who are seeking further information. And it, it, it is actually an organized sort of violence. And we saw that starting with uh, the federal elections when people were throwing stones at the prime minister. And then we saw that as soon as the um, as soon as the sort of movement started where there were protests outside of hospitals, people were also holding up swastikas and people were also, you know, um, making all these claims about about whether or not we have some sort of investment in big pharma and like all of these conspiracy theories like those are those are part of an organized violent movement and that is not a segment of the population that we can respond to and that that's where these horrible threats are coming from i'm I'm not even sure that it's organized but it's out there and 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 again i i just think if i can just add to that i think it's you know what you asked your original question was about social media and i think it's not organized, but potentially. But the thing is, you're having these people on social media who have huge influence, millions and millions of followers, and there is the ability to take that content down. And this is very harmful content that feeds into this rhetoric, to this anti-vaccine force. And it's very scary. And it's very scary that 
um, organizations like Facebook and other, you know, big social media platforms do not do their due diligence to take that information down, which leads to very harmful content that's disseminated and adds to this hate towards people who are disseminating science. Yeah, uh, completely agree. Completely agree. And just to add one point to that is that I would even take it a step further. And so this is sort of what I was alluding to. Imagine if we had the positive content promoted to sort of have a step up and be proactive. And we had that across many social media channels like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And it was promoted by celebrities and, you know, people that, you know, the general public can relate to, uh, religious personas. Uh, sports personalities, pop stars, uh, you know, you can name it. But, you know, this was something which I feel was lacking, and I totally agree. I mean, this wouldn't really uh, be something which would appeal to everyone, but I think it may, you know, perhaps we could have been in a better position if we had been proactive about this, uh, you know, back in January. Um, Have you seen... Also, I was just going to add also that there is, we are also undermined and further harmed by, by politicians in Ontario targeting us, um, dismissing us. And that, um, that does fuel the people who are already uh, kind of looking for, looking for a fight or looking for, um, you know, a justification in, um, in harassing us. Well, if there's, our there's, there's, leaders don't protect us and actually undermine us. Then, then we're really on our own. Well, the, those, those people have been thrown out of the caucus. So, uh, you know, mm, um, not all of them. No. Well, um, let us take a quick call from Stan in Mississauga. Hi, Stan. I'm having, yes. Um, I, I think the police should be involved. If a doctor gets a death threat in a letter, that's no different than me coming to your office and saying I'm going to kill you. The police should be involved. I mean, these people should not get off the hook by threatening people in our community, especially doctors. Thanks for that, Stan. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, if the letters are anonymous, it can be hard to trace. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation. You know, I, I'd like to get a sense is, you know, now that the pandemic, well, at the moment, seems to be maybe winding down a bit, things are a bit more open. Do you, do you see an easing in this, Dr. Bogler? I mean, I would hope so. I mean, Dr. Kaplan-Murthy just got this letter recently. Um, my letters just came in the last few weeks. I have to, like, I'll just clarify one thing. My, my letters were not death threats. If they were death threats, I 100% would have gone to the cops. But they were scary, nonetheless. You know, sort of uh, accusing me of killing babies is very scary. And it's absolutely, you know, it's the opposite for what I try to do every day in my life. I try to, yeah, I deliver babies and I'm trying to protect, you know, pregnant individuals and their families and make sure that everyone lives a healthier life and has a healthy pregnancy. So it's, it's very unsettling to receive these letters. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful, you know, as, you know, we've had this blitz around vaccines and pregnancy a few weeks ago and things are settling down. There's slowly a better uptake of vaccines in pregnancy and hopefully we have less work to do in terms of advocating but it's not over there's still a gap in terms of vaccinating the pregnant population compared to everyone else i don't think this is over anytime soon i really don't i think we're getting into booster shots we're not we're not mm-hmm. done yet um and the kids the kids yeah, that were yes, immunized yes. We're, like i'm terrified as a family doctor where you know, like I ran those Jabapaloozas and I immunized thousands of people who aren't my patients because I just trusted that they were all going to be respectful and kind and, you know, and I cannot do that for kids because with, with um, like our children's hospital, you know, had people um, protesting and harassing last week at the same time that I was receiving the death threat. Like we're worried that as soon as the announcement that vaccine is approved for, for children 5 to 11 years old, we're going to we're going to see a, a worsening of these kinds of attacks for exactly the reason that Dr. Bogler was also um, harassed because um, because they, they use children and babies as a, another thing to say that, that this is abusive and that we're horrible. So um, so to me, like what happens in the next um, six to eight weeks is going to be more scary than anything that has gone on before now. 
Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was I was thinking that just you know just the fact that things are more open where you know people might be less. I don't know, stressed because of that, that might back off a bit. But I, I, I definitely hear you. Uh, Dr. Arya, you think things will get worse before they get better? Yeah, that's my concern. And I'm, I, I'm, I share Dr. Kaplan-Murth's fears as well. And I'm obviously very disappointed to hear that, Dr. Kaplan-Murth, that, you know, you're not having a Japapalooza for kids. And, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm scared because this is a critical point in the vaccine rollout when we have about 1.7 million unvaccinated children aged 5 to 11. And two of my children are actually in that category as well, um, who are really looking forward to getting vaccinated. But I'm afraid about, you know, how this is going to affect uptake and, of course, you know, how we're going to keep schools open. This has all been a consideration during this fourth wave. And we've yet to really see any leadership uh, on how we're going to protect vaccine clinics and, you know, the health workers who are providing the vaccinations. So absolutely, I'm still quite concerned and I don't think we're out of it. And I wanted to add one last point that, you know, what's ironic about what many people are upset about, which is, you know, the vaccine mandates or the certificate programs, is that we only need those because not enough people are vaccinated. If we get enough people vaccinated, perhaps past 90% or more, then I think the numbers will almost certainly improve and we will likely be able to roll back a lot of those restrictions that people are upset about. But it's really ironic that people are upset at those restrictions and then not getting vaccinated themselves, which keeps the restrictions or it, it should justify keeping in the restrictions for longer. Okay, we're uh, running out of time. So 20 seconds each, uh, Dr. Kaplan-Murth. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, if, um, if we can just say, if we can just say very clearly that, um, we're not going to be, we're not going to be, um, scared into silence. We're not going to be scared into not giving vaccines. I can't do the job of Palooza for kids on the street and immunizing people I don't know because of this, but, um, but I am absolutely going to still be immunizing all of my own patients who are kids and, um, and we have each other's backs. Like that's, that's one of the things that I think is really clear. As colleagues across Canada and internationally, um, we are going to speak out about this and we're going to keep doing the work that we do because it really matters. Okay, Dr. Bogler, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, I agree as well. We're not going to stop. You know, even receiving these letters has not stopped me. We're still going to be spreading important information and vaccinating, you know, the next cohort. We're still going to be doing the incredible work. And I really do think I am grateful for having this conversation so that all of us can support one another. I will just say one last thing. I think we dismiss trolls online and we say, oh, it's just online. It's just trolls. But it amplifies and it fuels the people that will then take the next step to send letter or to protest on the street outside of hospitals. So I think we need to really have a clear message, a strong message from policymakers that even what's online has to be stopped. Okay, we are really out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Amit Arya, Dr. Tali Bogler, and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's like another pandemic that's spreading. Lately, we've been hearing more about increasing online hate against some ethnic groups, against politicians, especially women. Well, now there is another group that's being targeted by aggressive anti-vaxxers, doctors. And sometimes it is escalating all the way to death threats, and that is because of their advocacy and education on the subject of COVID-19 vaccines during the pandemic. So let's talk about it. First, let me give you the numbers. If you would like to have your say, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician who writes about health policy and politics, Dr. Amit Arya, the palliative care lead at Kensington Health in Toronto, and Dr. Tali Bogler, an academic family physician and family medicine obstetrics provider at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hello and uh, welcome to you all. 
Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you for coming to talk about this. I'm really sorry that we have to talk about this. Dr. Kaplan-Mirth, you uh, recently wrote an editorial in the Globe and Mail about your experience. Can you tell us about it, please? Yeah. um, So I wrote, and um, I was responding to a death threat and anti-Semitic hate that I received um, in the last... um, Week and um, but like I really emphasize that this isn't this isn't an isolated event. We are um, seeing more and more um, nastiness, more violence, and um, racist and and um, threatening uh, both activity on social media as well as in our in our um, clinics and around hospitals and uh, and all of this is. So not okay. And really, the, the question that I was posing was, who has our backs? Because we've done all the work that we were asked to do, and we've gone above and beyond. And um, while we're exhausted and um, feeling demoralized from, from the ways in which we haven't been supported by our province, um, we still keep doing it because it really matters. But of course, when we receive death threats, and uh, when we have to have police outside of our homes or offices, um, we are, you know, we're saying like there is a there is a line that has been crossed, and it's not okay. Um, I just want to go over. So you had an experience where a threat against you was sent to the College of Physicians and Surgeons on October the twentieth, but they didn't tell you. They didn't even tell you about it till November the first. That's right. So um, and and the you know the College of Physicians and Surgeons, their job is to protect the public. Um, when there are doctors, um, like for example, they're they're going after doctors who are um, providing misinformation to the public and writing inappropriate exemption letters and so on. Um, that is their role. Uh, but uh, for them to have received, and this wasn't actually a complaint. It was it was a death threat, and and it was full of all kinds of um, all kinds of. Uh, referrals to Nazism, and it was, it was horrible, lots of uh, conspiracy theory stuff in there. Um, but for, for them to receive that and not just even as a good Samaritan to imme- immediately pick up the phone and phone the police was a little bit bizarre, um, to say the least. But also, um, also it's scary that um, people who are, and it's a very small subset of the population, these are not our patients where we have respectful conversations about whether they or not they want vaccines. Those patients are never disrespectful. They're never threatening. They're never violent. Uh, we have relationships with our patients. This is a total stranger who, who sent this in. And, um, and this person, you know, we have reason to believe is within an easy commuting or driving distance from where I work. So we're not, um, we're not, we can block trolls on social media, but we are not equipped and especially like as a physician working in the community like i don't have security guards who stand around my office i'm not in the hospital with built-in security um as a family doctor what i what i do i do because i care about my patients and i care about um making sure that everybody who has the need um for care is able to access it doctor Uh, doctor i just want to ask how how did the college respond like what did they tell you why why didn't they do anything about this for so long did they yeah there's kind of no explanation that's been offered and 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 even after that then i phoned the police and it took four days and really a lot of noise on social media um before the police responded to me they phoned me at like midnight four days after i had um called in with the request for help because of a death threat and um i mean we know this though we know that it's extremely difficult when we are subject to harassment. It's extremely difficult to get help. And um, for, for women, for people of color, for anybody who um, is vulnerable, when we say we need help and we need help now because we're in danger, um, it, it's like we're pulling teeth to actually get that help. Uh, Dr. Amit Arya, what's your experience? Yeah, so through the pandemic, I've received a lot of hatred, mostly through social media, but not exclusively. Um, A lot of it has been very threatening. Um, You know, much of it has been argumentative, you know, sort of trying to tell me that COVID-19 is not real. It's a hoax, and I'm part of some greater (laughs) global conspiracy. We get that here, too, but yeah, Yeah. it's usually not dangerous. 
Yeah, so so absolutely, that's you know something, and of, of course, I would say that that rhetoric has escalated since the vaccine rollout. Since we've had public health measures such as mandates uh, for health workers, specifically in long-term care, or at least people lobbying for mandates and vaccine certificates, um, definitely I've found lately um, since uh, you know the government has made you know sort of two decisions. Um, you know, one decision was where they sort of announced these dates to roll back the vaccine certificate program without having the data to support it. Um, you know, that kind of I felt emboldened a lot of the rhetoric online. And, you know, the second one is where they sort of refuse to mandate vaccines for health workers. And that really in, you know, in social media was a victory for many people who are against vaccinations. And I just really want to emphasize that, of course, um, I mean, I think we should have no room and, you know, there should be no place in our society for death threats for you know, misogyny, anti-Semitism, and racism that many of my colleagues and myself are experiencing. But beyond that, we need our political leaders to really do their job and actually rise to the occasion, show leadership, protect health workers who are already suffering and burnt out themselves. That's step one, because, of course, a healthy workforce of health workers is what we need to keep people healthy. I mean, we shouldn't have to say it, but that's the reality. And the other thing is, is that, you know, we're seeing politicians themselves who are propagating this misinformation and are kind of winking at people who are spreading that misinformation as well on the side and catering to their, you know, to their desires and their beliefs. And that's absolutely unacceptable. It's bad because in the end, this is a very sad situation, Libby, where people who are receiving the misinformation will will actually, you know, be putting themselves at much greater risk of suffering and dying during a pandemic with COVID when we have this fantastic tool of vaccinations. And of course, it's going to drag out the pandemic for longer than it needs to be for everyone. So I think, I mean, we need to have our politicians step up to the plate, protect health workers, and combat misinformation, starting with some type of science communication strategy. Uh, Dr. Bogler, What's your experience? Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I was, you know, very involved in advocating for pregnant individuals to get the vaccine uh, during a pregnancy right from the get-go. And what happened as a result of that is I received, you know, we saw lots of anti-vaccine propaganda related to fertility and pregnancy. And I want to say it's almost like anti-vaccines on, on steroids, <laughs> because when it gets to the pregnancy piece, people, it becomes, it gets woven into this discussion about pro-life, pro-choice, this whole discourse that can become very hateful. Um, and it be, and I, and I received the direct target of that. I received, uh, threats online, um, lots on social media. But for me, it really escalated when I started to receive, um, handwritten letters, um, sent to me at my office. Um, because that that really is where it drew the line for me that this you know people were looking me up, finding where I worked, and actually sent very threatening, very scary letters um, along the lines that I killed babies, um, I killed this person's baby, you should hang your head in shame, like very threatening, very scary words. And, you know, what Dr. Kaplan Merce kind of alluded to is where do you go? And I didn't know where to go because how do you stop handwritten letters from getting mailed to my personal office? Like what, how do I, how do I stop that? And, you know, I, I did at the time call our Canadian Medical Protective Association, but the response was, you know, what, what can we do? We can't really do anything. And, it, and, and that's a, it's a scary thought. And, you know, that people know where I work and are targeting me. Um, and I don't really know who to turn to and, have, and what have to you, do about it. Have you tried to go to the cops? Um, so most of these letters are anonymous. Some are not. I have not gone to the cops. Again, these are letters. You know, maybe that's a discussion we could have if anyone <laughs> suggests that, you know, we should. But, you know, will it stop the next letter from coming in? That's sort of what I'm thinking. And and I, it's not just one. I've received several. So, okay, But yeah, stopping the letters is one thing, but, but I would be concerned about stopping the person behind the letter. It's not a particular person. It's many. Um, I, well, I, yeah. I mean, are you worried that they might actually show up at your doorstep? I mean, m- many of these letters are actually from across Canada. So unlike Dr. Kaplan Mirth, she was she was suggesting that maybe this person might live close to where she works. Um, they're from across Canada. 
So I, you know, maybe I'm naive to think that this is not going to, you know, escalate to that. Um, maybe it's my na- naivety. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. But I have not. I have not gone to the cops. I, I did go to the CMPA and I told some leaders in my hospital. Um, and, but you know, I have to say that when I saw Dr. Kaplan Murth come out and, and talk about her experience. It, you know, it, I reflected on the fact that, you know, I, maybe I should have taken this more seriously myself. And maybe, you know, as a, as a collective group, we all need to be talking about that. We all need to be talking to push for better policies for politicians and the government really to come out with a clear message that this is not OK. And so I'm thankful that we are having this discussion today to, you know, send that clear message and hopefully push for better messaging around this. Okay, we've got to take another break. We'll be back with more on this very disturbing phenomenon, threats against doctors, threats online, threats uh, in in writing. Um, what the heck is going on? Let me give the numbers out before we take the break. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Are there too many pot shops on the retail strip in your neighborhood? I have to say, I go by some streets where it seems every second storefront is in the cannabis business. And that's why Toronto City Councillors Kristen Wong-Tam and Paula Fletcher are tabling a motion asking for one of two things. They either want the Ontario government to hit pause on new cannabis retail licenses for a year or until a private member's bill from the NDP becomes law. And it's not just the numbers that are at issue. They want cities to have more say over where these stores are located. And apparently, it's not even the cannabis per se that's the issue. They all have these frosted glass front windows, which means you can't see in, and that puts a damper on other retailers who also complain they cannot keep up with the kind of rents these stores are paying. So what do you think? What's happening in your hood? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher, Ward 14, Toronto Danforth, NDP MPP Peter Tabbins, also from Toronto Danforth, and Meg Marshall, the community the community manager of the Queen Street West BIA and the Bloor Court BIA. That's Business Improvement Area. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Libby. It's a pleasure. Hi, Libby. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Uh, well, let's begin with. Uh, Ms. Fletcher, and uh, we heard you give some of the numbers uh, in the clip in Bob's News before the cast. So uh, give a sense. Uh, so you have uh, 26, I think you said, and, and eight are under consideration. That's, uh, you know, 26. How many would, would you see on, uh, you know, one block? And, and who are they crowding out? Oh, thanks for that, Libby. Uh, well, yeah, down on Queen East in one business district, there are six in a row, basically, in a block and a half from Broadview going east. And the Danforth has quite a bit of clustering. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of constituents write in and say, gee, uh, what are we doing? The, the street is kind of getting dead in the same time we're trying to liven it up. As I said in that clip, we only have four LCBOs, and now we could have up to, at this point, 34 uh, pot shops, and the LCBO has the same product. So do all these stores. People would like to see a little bit better um, placement of the stores. They'd like to make sure that that the streets aren't just covered in frosted glass where nobody can see in, nobody can see out. has a terrible effect of deadening the, the, the street. I just want to say that you remember back when this was uh, legalized and all of us support the legalization, the province asked every city, are you in or are you out to sell pot? 
And our city said, yes, we're in, we're happy to do that, but we want some conditions around where the stores would go. Well, we got the sales, but we didn't get the conditions, so we're still after those. Well, and aren't that's there? Part of what we're trying to do. Sorry to interrupt, and yes. I'll throw this to Peter Tabbins. Aren't there conditions about the proximity to schools and and stuff like that? Well, what's been brought forward by my colleague uh, MPP Merritt Styles is giving cities the the power. Uh, sorry, the authority to have much greater control on the concentration of shops. I think cities have the the ability to look at all the other social factors uh, and determine in their minds what what proximities are of concern and what concentrations work and don't work. Uh, And I think here, Libby, really it's making sure the cities have that planning ability, that regulatory ability to keep our main streets attractive, uh, and not simply dominated by one product. Right, but you do have the right not to put them near schools, correct? Uh, I think that may already be in place. Yeah, okay, well, it's interesting because uh, representatives of the cannabis industry, and we'll be talking to one of them shortly, uh, are saying, well, when you opted in, you kind of, uh, you know, uh, gave away your right to have more control over this. Um, uh, Meg Marshall, is that a fair argument? Um, I'm not as well versed on the nuance, uh, all of the details in, in the deep legislation, but just looking at it from the context of being a community manager, um, municipalities and community members are the ones that are the ears and eyes on the street. So when we look at how these applicants are issued their approvals, it's all it's all done from a provincial body and it doesn't there's it's evident that there's no real strategy in the placement or how many they even were going to allow uh backing up councillor fletcher's point that there's um far more cannabis retail outlets now than lcbo they're just kind of if someone meets if the applicant meets the required criteria then they basically just get a green pass to go and open up their shop so what's really important is that the hyper-local communities and neighborhoods have a say in what goes on in their neighborhoods. And as it currently stands, um, the municipality feedback just doesn't have any weight. And we need to give the municipalities, our cities, our city councillors, that mechanism to allow to comment. When we talk about how they have the frosted windows, and you know, a lot of them even have these really crazy, obnoxious, sometimes vinyl wraps outside the stores. I can't necessarily say that that's overly inviting. With planning policy, many new developments have to integrate their development into the city streetscape. Maybe that should be part of the, the policy, too, for cannabis shops if, if they're going to be in... in- can, you, can you give me an idea, say, uh, take a stretch of Queen, Queen Street West? So how many cannabis shops would there be on one block as opposed to other uh, kinds of stores? So I did a walk of the street late last week, and we have 13 cannabis shops between Simcoe Street to Bathurst. Um, There are small little stretches where you might not have one, and then you'll have three, you know, within, within a block, or you might have four within a block. So it's within our two kilometer stretch, we have 13 cannabis locations and you know that, that's a lot we often just kind of say when we see you know some we see some activity happening in a vacant storefront you know we kind of say is it going to be another pot shop we just that seems to be the most prevalent type of business that's taking over a lot of these vacant storefronts you know it, it, it's kind of funny that i know that for instance if you had three shoe stores in a row that would be a, a good place to go if you're looking for shoes but it's hard to imagine that that's true with cannabis um uh and paula fletcher yeah, yeah thank, thanks for that because all the products are the same three shoe stores you might have different brands you might have uh we do have shoe stores in close proximity, and they're not all carrying the same shoes. The pot shops all carry the same product from the Ontario Canvas store. And I'll just remind everybody that uh, from the city, we do have the right to weigh in on liquor licenses to say, is that in the public interest? Is this a good place? Is what's going on? Um, and we don't have that right as a city to have an opinion that needs to be taken into consideration with the cannabis stores. 
So having 34 stores that all sell the same product, many of them clustered in the block, I don't think anybody would think we would have 34 mini LCBOs on a street. The city did ask when we were accepting to sell that we put conditions, and one of them, Libby, was not across from a childcare centre or community centres. That was not given to us, and many of these licences and licensed operations are very close to these types of operations. Hmm. Um, Peter Tabbins, I mean, uh, when they get a licence, this is a question, do they, do they have to have the location nailed down, or can they get a licence and then look for a location? Um, I have to say, Libby, I honestly don't know about that. It's by location. Okay, so they... And you can go on the website, and this is how we learn. You can go on the website, and you can see how many applications there are uh, in your ward. And now that's why I know there's eight applications that are outstanding, and I know there's already 26 locations. And I want to be clear, we're not opposed to the sale of cannabis, but the kind of topsy-turvy approach that has resulted from just throwing licenses out the door without taking anything else into consideration is something that is concern, of concern. And the streetscape is of great concern to our business community, as Mega said. We really want a well-balanced retail mix in all of our communities throughout Toronto. Uh, Peter, here is uh, another question. Um, what do you think the impact of the pandemic has been? Because I can see how a pot shop might have been a better business during COVID than something else. Well, I, I would say that the impact of the pandemic probably has been to increase sales in cannabis shops, but it's also meant that a lot of businesses have gone under. And I think my, my two colleagues can speak to that. Uh, leaving storefronts open. And really, Libby, we want storefronts filled, but if you're going to have successful business districts that employ a lot of people and really improve a neighborhood, you need a diversity of shops. And a big concern here is that uh, you can see large, and I'll, I'll call them, for want of a better term, big box cannabis stores, having the money to expand dramatically and drive out the smaller ones. Uh, I don't think we want that. I, I think what we want on our main streets is a wide variety of locally owned mom and pop places uh, that give people that sense of uh, a, a community and a locality where they're at home. And if you set things up so that one industry and and within that industry, one big retailer can dominate, you just don't have that attractive feel. So I, I think the pandemic set up the conditions to make that monopolization far more likely. Okay, let's take a call from Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hello, how's everyone today? Fine, go ahead, you're on the air. Okay, I'm, I'm sensing a, a bit of, I don't know, it seems like prejudice here. I, I mean, I would ask the questions like, in the area where you're counting how many cannabis shops there are, and there's tons of them out there, I agree with that. But the point is, how many stores in that area sell cigarettes? How many Starbucks where they're all selling the exact same product, the cigarettes the exact same product? How many Tim Hortons? And I'm, I'm sure you probably don't even know the answer to those. And I, you know, I don't really see what the difference is. This is business. All these stores will eventually sort themselves out. I don't know why you suddenly don't have faith in business and the marketplace sorting itself out. I mean, this is the beginning of it, and some will go out of business, and some will stick around. Okay, I'm going to let uh, our panelists answer that. Thanks for your call. So, uh, 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 Paula Fletcher, what's the answer to that? Paula Fletcher? Have we lost her? Well, if you Sorry, I just have to jump in. I do know how many Starbucks, I know how many Tim Hortons, and they're not all beside one another. Uh, there's one on Queen East, and there's one on Gerard Street. There are six uh, pot shops on Queen East. I think what, uh, and I appreciate the caller, uh, maybe with the industry, but that one of the things that's happened in a couple of cases is that when the lease comes up for renewal, that the landlords will take out the long-standing tenants and take the pot shop because they can pay such, they're offering such high rent. 
and we've lost a number of long-standing businesses, not to the pandemic, but to the renewal of the leases. Um, you know, we're really looking for a balance. As I said, we're not opposed to these shops, but there's, the balance has to be right. We need a Goldilocks approach. Not too many, not any, but just the right number. Uh, I want to get into this business about the frosted storefront. So uh, I'm sure that's to give people privacy, but this is a legal product now. I mean, we don't have frosted glass at LCBOs, <clears throat> even though they don't have huge glass windows. So um, can can cities say you, you can't do that anymore? Or um, what do you think about that, Meg Marshall? Um, I think because it comes down from the provincial legislation and it is a very regulated industry, um, it's similar to tobacco where you've got very specific marketing rules and regulations on what they can and cannot promote. So potentially it may have just been the easiest approach from from the provincial government just to say frosted windows. I, I will say that there are some businesses, cannabis businesses out there that do have some interesting storefronts because they've been able to add a little bit of an artistic element, and that's great, but still at the end of the day, they're not allowed to show product, uh, cannabis product that's promoting the cannabis lifestyle, if we can call it that. So it's, you know, there are some people that have found a creative way to, to make it work for them, but I mean, at the majority of them have the, the pretty stale looking frosted glass and, and I don't know how that really adds to the neighborhood but because it's a legality come coming from the provincial mandate I, I don't know if the city can change that I, I think I would have to lean on Councillor Fletcher to kind of weigh in on that okay um, Meg Marshall uh, we are going to let you go as we continue with uh, Peter Tabins and Paula Fletcher and uh, bring in a, a cannabis council representative so is there anything you'd like to leave us with um, I think we're headed in the right direction and just trying to make a balanced neighborhood. And as uh, Councillor Fletcher said, it's all about having that right mix. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Meg Marshall. And now joining the conversation is Adam Vassos, President of the Retail Cannabis Council of Ontario. Hello there, Adam. Good afternoon, Libby. Yeah, so uh, what do you have to say uh, to these requests on the part of people in the city? They say that there are too many cannabis stores, too concentrated, and that it kind of uh, dev- uh, deadens and also uh, makes too much competition for storefronts. Uh, so what do you say to them? You know, we're, we're Canadians, and Canadians believe in an open market uh, I think that means that consumer demand drives supply, not the government. Uh, you know, I've been listening to uh, Councillor uh, Fletcher uh, indicate that she'd like to see a balance in terms of, you know, what's appropriate in, uh, with stores and uh, other businesses. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that the city is uh, qualified to determine what that appropriate balance is. Um, I'm not sure anybody is. You know, we, we, as I said, believe in an open market, and the market determines supply and demand. And I understand that, you know, from someone sitting outside of the industry looking in, you're going to say, hey, there's a lot of stores. There's way too many stores. And you look at Queen Street or you look at Danforth, and I think Councillor Fletcher said there was 26 cannabis stores in her entire um, riding, but if you look at things like restaurants, you know, on Queen Street, there's probably over 100 restaurants. On Girard, there's over 100. Yeah, but most of them sell different things. Well, at the end of the day, everybody sells different things. And, and to say that cannabis stores all sell the same thing is really uh, incorrect. The OCS, which is our wholesaler from where uh, retail cannabis stores buy their products, they have over 1,600 SKUs. That, that means 16 different, uh, 1,600 different items. The average cannabis store carries 100 or less of those SKUs. So from a, from a theoretical or a reality point of view, you could literally have 16 stores on the same block all selling different things, no one selling the same thing. So that's, that, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that everybody is selling the same thing. Just, to, just like it is to say that, you know, uh, coffee shops all sell the same thing. Okay, before you know? I before I give them a chance to respond, I mean, the the question that I have, you know, are are all these stores doing well? I mean, uh, you would think there there's a lot of them there. Well, uh, Libby, that's a fantastic question, and that's one thing that I look at uh, every day uh, on behalf of our um, constituents and on behalf of our members. And I think the issue here is. 
if, if you look at restaurants, if you look at doctor's offices, if you look at dental offices, uh, the city stays out of how many are allowed to be in a particular area. But the government and the city do regulate these. So if a restaurant opened up and didn't have the appropriate accreditation, it would be shut down. We've all seen what Yeah, happened. but what I asked you, sorry, before we move on, is, is uh, are they all doing well? I mean, it seems like a lot of them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to. I need to answer your question, but I need to. I need to sort of walk you through this part of it. So, it, to determine whether or not the stores are doing well, if they weren't doing well, they wouldn't be open, right? The market dictates how how well they're doing, and and for them to be opening and continuing to be opening, the stores must be doing well. The other thing that we sort of glossed over, but we didn't get a chance to get into, is that uh, from someone sitting looking outside in, they think, my gosh, there seems to be a lot of, of cannabis stores. But you, you also need to realize that we have in Ontario over 660 LCBO stores. And in addition to the LCBO stores, we also have about 180 agency stores, which are in outlying areas that don't aren't big enough for a full LCBO store. So that means that there's roughly 800 LCBO stores and LCBO outlet stores. With cannabis, we only have 1,000 stores in Ontario, so it's not that much of a difference. The difference has been that cannabis has only been around for a couple of years, and as a result, you're seeing a lot of stores opening all at the same time. Over time, that will balance out. The market cannot sustain this type of growth. So you're not going to see 5,000 cannabis stores. You're not going to even, I don't even think you'll see 2,000 cannabis stores across Ontario because the market may not be able to support those stores. Okay. Um, okay. I just want to get reaction. But first, let me give the numbers out again. People, do you think there are too many cannabis stores in your hood? Do you think that it is harming the retail diversity on the street fronts that most of us enjoy when we can just walk up the street to get what we need? The numbers to call. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, Paula Fletcher, what do you say to Adam Vassos? He says, uh, let the market decide. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, these are, as uh, my colleague Christian Longtam points out, they are, it's a controlled substance, the same as alcohol. And I'll just reiterate that the province has given city council a role in looking at appropriate licenses and to weigh in as to whether that's in the public interest or not here, there, and many other places. And I, we did ask for that, the same with this other controlled substance, which is cannabis, and we will refuse that. So it's certainly not that the city weighs in everywhere, but we do already have some authority, and I think everyone needs to know that. I'd say if you look at the 1,200 um, you know, number of cannabis shops, there's a preponderance in the city of Toronto. Uh, some places don't have one. Some small towns don't have one, actually are having a hard time getting one. They probably have an LCBO. So, uh, again, we're not opposed to the sale of cannabis, but when the city said, yes, we'll sell it, we said not across from childcare centers, not across from a daycare center, not across from a drop-in, not across from a rec center. And on Queen Street, all of those are there. And what's right across the street and down the street? All of those things. So there's just a kind of a lack of respect for the knowledge and the thoughtfulness of how the main street should be developing. And the other thing is what with the rents, because as I've said, license uh, rents aren't being renewed leases aren't being renewed because landlords are being offered way more money by businesses that adams just uh, recognized are probably going to go out of business because there's too many of the same thing in one place so it's a balance uh i think we have a right to raise this and, and we're getting so much support from local communities in raising this uh, Peter Tabins, uh, what do you think the chances are of getting this private member's bill passed? They, uh, private member's bills don't usually do too well. Uh, well, you're right, Libby. Usually they don't do too well. But I think that uh, MPP Styles was right when she said this is an issue that affects uh, MPPs and communities across a wide variety of political persuasion. There's just no getting about it. What Councillor Fletcher has talked about are issues that have been raised by councillors uh, on the centre and right on city council. Uh, there is an interest 
amongst legislators as a whole to make sure that we have an orderly situation here and one that respects local municipalities. Uh, you can never predict with certainty, but I would say that if there is any bill uh, before the House that appeals across the partisan spectrum, this is one of them. And I'm not going to prejudge where it ultimately goes. Uh, sometimes I've found that bills presented by the opposition themselves don't pass, but the government adopts all the ideas, introduces their own bill uh, so they can claim credit for it and go forward with it. I think this is an idea that uh, has a very good chance of coming to, to fruition, whether it's with this bill or with a government version of it. Adam Vassos, uh, what do you think of the idea of at least uh, giving cities the same kind of say that they have over liquor and other controlled substances? Well, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to um, I'm not opposed to the city being involved in in, in uh, dealing with public interest, as Councillor uh, Fletcher uh, alluded to. But I think that the city also needs to be involved with public safety, and um, so the city is now asking to sort of insinuate itself with legally licensed cannabis stores, but they've proven that they really have dropped the ball with unlicensed cannabis stores. You don't have to walk very far to see a number of illegal cannabis stores. They don't have the frosted glass. They're selling to, to anybody that walks in. They're not buying legally tested product. They're not buying product that's been approved and reviewed by the uh, federal government to confirm that it doesn't contain any contaminants. And those are all issues that the city could have done under their public safety and, and under their bylaws, but they haven't done that. So I think it's kind of hypocritical for them to say now, hey, you know, we're not going to do anything about the illegal stores, but we want to tell you where you can put the legally licensed stores. Hmm. Okay, uh, we're just about out of time, so I'm going to go around the table. Uh, yep. so, Paula, what would you like to leave us with? And you can certainly respond to that. Uh, I would just like to leave you with... Uh one of the government MPPs in Scarborough has publicly said, we want the city to be able to say, uh, have more say, we want to have more community control, and has written a letter, actually, to the government about that. So this is a sensitive issue. Um, we are talking about the licensed ones and six in a row. I know uh, Adam Vassos is going down a little different road there, but... That's really what it's about, that we've got frosted glass instead of frosted flakes in, in convenience stores. That's what's happening throughout sections of the city. And people are worried about it, and I respect the fact that they're concerned. Peter, what would you like to leave us with? I think this is a practical approach to bring balance to the range of stores that we have on our main streets. I think giving the city authority uh, to step in and speak to this issue is a reasonable step. Uh, I think they've done well in the past, and I think they'll do well in the future. My hope is that the government and other parties in the legislature will support this bill. Okay, Adam, uh, we're basically out of time. 20 seconds, please. <laughs> Frosted glass, it's not a provincial or a city matter. It's under the Federal Cannabis Act, so neither the motion nor the bill are going to affect that, although I think everybody would like to see the frosted glass go. A well-balanced community, everybody wants a well-balanced community, and that's what the open market does. Okay. Thank you so much, Paula Fletcher, Adam Vassos, and Peter Tabins. And uh, I'm sure we will be talking about this uh, again pretty soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Okay, uh, we are taking a break now on the other side of the, of the break, a very disturbing phenomenon, and that is online hate against a different group now, doctors. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.